You know, there are uh, many things in life that I think as people we would like to avoid. Uh, for instance, uh, my wife, she'll regularly ask me at night, she's like, do you want to talk about your feelings? And I respond with, no, I don't want to talk about my feelings. She'll be like, what are you feeling right now? And I'm like, nothing. I want to go to sleep. That's what I'm feeling right now. And as men, I think there's uh, that in us for whatever reason or another oftentimes not to talk about our feelings. Now, I will talk about my feelings. Just when you ask me, I don't want to talk about my feelings. But there's things that we want to avoid. We may want to avoid a situation where we're in the water with this animal. Uh, maybe. There we go. That is something I would like to avoid, being in the water with a great white shark or maybe being in the presence of this. I, I don't know what that is. I think it's a cat or the next one. Uh, it's some kind of animal and maybe possessed. I'm not sure. Uh, so I probably wouldn't be, wouldn't, I would like to avoid being in a situation or in a room with either of those animals. And there's many things in life, whether it's a subject, whether it's a conversation, a situation that we would prefer to not find ourselves in. And there's one topic in life that we often want to avoid thinking about and talking about, and that is the judgment of God. And we want to avoid it because it's one, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to think about the judgment of God, the destruction of the world, all mankind standing before God, and it means that we are accountable then for how we have lived. And as human beings, I think there's something in us, we, we want accountability for others who do wrong, but we don't want accountability for ourselves and for how we lived. And so we often try to deflect and avoid or minimize the judgment of God. We say things like, God is only going to judge those who have done really bad things, and we have the image in mind, you know, like uh, uh, Mao or Adolf Hitler or whoever, somebody that's really, really bad in history. And we've never done anything really bad like that, so I'm okay. You know, God loves all people, therefore he is not going to punish anyone, or everybody's doing it, so God must be okay with it, or nobody's perfect, right? We're human, we're going to make mistakes, but God, God, he will forgive. That's what God does. He forgives people. We have all these ways of trying to minimize the reality of God's judgment, but God's judgment is a reality that is going to be revealed, and for the health of our own souls, we should pay attention, we should engage with the judgment of God as scripture teaches it. And that's what we're going to do here this morning. Romans chapter 2, 1 through 11, speaks to the nature of God's judgment. There's three important truths about God's judgment. One is God's judgment is inescapable. Two, it's righteous. And three, it is impartial. The first, God's judgment is inescapable. Listen to verse 3. Paul says, Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Now, there's a important question to ask here as Paul is asking this question is, who is the you that Paul is referring to? Do you? Well, Romans 2, 1, therefore every one of you who judges is without excuse. When you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. Paul is speaking to a person, to a people who are judging the heathen in chapter 1. So they're looking at those whom Paul just written about in chapter 1, those who are living in rebellion to God, flagrant, open, observable rebellion, sin, destructive immorality, all kinds of heinous behavior. And that Paul is speaking to the person who is looking at those people and they're judging them. And when Paul says he's speaking to a person who is judging those in chapter 1, Paul is not, he's not speaking to someone who is looking at the situation humbly, like Paul is, and agreeing with Paul that these people are living in sin, 
And the reality and the result of living in sin and rebellion to God is that those who practice such things deserve to die. Rather, he's speaking to the person who stands in judgment over those people, who's looking down at those people, who is saying, you are worthy of condemnation, you are worthy of death, while I am not. More than likely, Paul probably has the Jewish person in mind here specifically, although this applies to all but the Jews specifically. They thought of themselves as righteous because they were the ones who had the law and who were keeping the law. If they kept the law of Moses, if they did the things the rabbis told them to do, then God was going to accept them. And even if they didn't, many believed that just because they were Jewish, they were righteous. They were going to escape the judgment of God and be with God forever in heaven. In fact, some taught that Abraham would sit outside the gates of hell in order to prevent even the most wicked Jew from entering because no Jew could ever go to hell. But it's not just the Jewish person that Paul has in mind, but it's also someone who's just the moralist, someone who, who has moral values or high standards of conduct. There were those people too in this society. In fact, Seneca, the Roman politician, he was a moral teacher, contemporary of Paul's, probably would have thought the same way. He would have looked at Paul's judgment of those in Romans 1 and said, I agree with you, Paul. I agree with you. They're living immoral lives. They're worthy of condemnation. But Paul or Seneca would have looked at the situation and much like the Jew would have said, but I'm different from those people. That this person, this group of people would have assumed they were exempt from the same condemnation as those, as those in Romans 1. They would have assumed that they were not worthy of the same punishment of death. And what Paul does then in chapter 2 is he turns his attention away from the heathen who is living in flagrant rebellion toward God, towards the moralist, the self-righteous, the religious person, the hypocrite, the one who sees himself or herself as better and exempt from the condemnation of God, the one who points the finger at those out there who are sinning while thinking he or she has no sin worthy of judgment, that somehow they will escape God's judgment because they are righteous, moral, upright people. And so Paul asked this question, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Effectively, he said, do you think, do you really think you will escape God's judgment? And asking this question, Paul is making a point about the judgment of God, which is that it's inescapable. And why is the judgment of God inescapable? Well, because in part, the judgment of God is based on truth. In verse 2, we now know, or now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on on truth. To be based on truth is to say that God's judgment is according to what is true. That God's judgment is based in reality. It's based in fact, in what's true about a person. And what's true about these people whom Paul has turned his attention to in chapter 2? What are the facts about these people? Well, Paul says again, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. At whatever point you judge another, Paul says, you do the same things. What does Paul mean you do the same things? How are they doing the same things? Because that person would have said, no, 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 we're not living like that. We're not living in flagrant immorality, sexual immorality, sleeping around with whomever, whatever. That, that's not how we're living. That, that is grotesque and wrong, Paul. What, what, what do you mean we do the same things? Well, look back at verses 29 through 31 in Paul's list of sin here that he concludes chapter 1 with. He says, They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And what do you notice in those lists of sins? The sins that Paul gives here? Well, they're not exclusively, exclusively about action and behavior, but they're also about attitudes and motives. Greed, envy, pride. They're things that are motivating certain behaviors, a motivating a way of living that may be wrong, that is not right. And why does that matter? Well, because sin is not simply a wrong action, but it's also a wrong attitude. Sin is not simply about something that is out there, that's done out here, but it's also about something that goes on in here, in the heart. And isn't this what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? He's getting at this idea, this point. Matthew 5 and 27, where he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or verse 21, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. See, you may not have overtly committed adultery, Paul says, but it's happened in your mind. You've lusted in your heart. You may not have overtly committed murder, but many times you have had anger and hatred in your heart towards another person. That God requires not only physical purity, but also the purity of heart. You may not have literally done some of the same things, the same sexually immoral behaviors as those around you, but you have sinned. In the heart, and because sin is no more is more than just simply your actions, but it's also attitudes and motives. And because you do the same things or you have sinned against God, you are also condemned. You stand condemned. See, the moralist, the religious person think that God's judgment is not for them. They look at the heathen, the immoral world around them, the immoral person, and then Paul's saying that you pass judgment on them. You're critical of them. You have this attitude where they are worthy of God's judgment while I am not. But see, Paul says, when you pass judgment, when you're judgmental towards another person, Paul says, you condemn yourself. You condemn yourself because you do the exact same things, which makes you what? A hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And John Stott, he writes, the first group do things they know to be wrong and approve of others who do them which is at least consistent, he's talking about in Romans 1, whereas the second group, Romans 2, do what they know to be wrong and condemn others who do them, which is hypocritical. Hypocrisy. And we hate hypocrisy as people when, one, when someone says one thing and does the other. When someone condemns you for something and then you look at their life, you're like, you're doing the same thing. Hypocrisy. I was driving down 235 going uh, to my house past the 63rd Street exit. And as I was driving, I noticed this guy. He's in the left lane, the, you know, the fast lane, right? And on the back of his window, he has this sticker that says, slow blank. You can fill in the blank, drivers suck. And then he has an inappropriate image with this uh, slogan, with this saying. And then he's driving in the left lane, which is the fast lane, holding up all this traffic. And I'm just like looking at him and thinking, is this like, are you like doing this just to like gaslight you? Like you're, you're trying to just make people upset or whatever? But he has this sticker and you're thinking you are doing the opposite of what you're condemning other people. Or you're doing the same thing of what, for what you condemn other people for. That there's just this hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy that comes with the judgment, the condemnation, this judgmental attitude toward others. And what we find in the scripture is that hypocrisy is seriously rebuked by Christ. Jesus is much harsher and stronger in his rebuke towards the hypocrite than almost anybody. The religious elite, the person, the Pharisee who thinks that they are clean, that they're abiding by God's law, and because they're abiding by God's law and they're immoral on the outside, they're acceptable to God and there is no immorality in them. And Jesus says, you are just whitewashed tombs. You look clean, but you are dead internally. He's strong with those who have this hypocritical attitude, judgmental attitude towards others. And there's some grave errors, three grave errors this type of person makes, the judgmental, moralist person makes. One is they underestimate the height of God's standard for righteousness. That when you're operating this way, you underestimate the height of God's standard for righteousness. That the God's standard for righteousness is not simply external behavior, but it's perfection. And perfection is more than external action, but it's also in your internal world. It's your attitudes and your motives that Jesus says you are to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you think about God, God is not only perfect in what he does, but in why he does it. That God's standard for righteousness is himself perfection, of which we, if we're humble, realize we don't meet. But closely related to that error is the second, which is they underestimate the depth of their own sin. They look at sin as something is out there. It's out there, and we're trying to keep it from coming in here, but what Jesus says is no, sin is not something that's just out there, but it's something actually that's in here, and it comes out and goes into the world. Mark 7, Jesus says, sin sin lies deep within the heart when he says, from within, verse 21, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual moralities, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil action, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and so on. All these evil things come from within. It's from within. The moralist doesn't understand. It's not just about simply not doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing externally, but also the right attitude, the right heart. And they don't understand the depth of their own sin, which leads a blind towards a blindness toward their own sin, in which we exaggerate the faults of others and we minimize our own. We exaggerate what everybody else does. Look at how bad, how evil, how wicked, and we minimize our own sin. Whatever that is. Our own judgmentalism, criticism towards others. The sin that is happening in the room behind the closed door. The sin that's going on in our own mind. We notice the speck in someone else's eye. We're quick to look at that person and we miss the log in our own eye. We miss the, the sin that's in our own life. They don't understand. Paul says that what you're doing, that you're doing the same thing for which you condemn others. And so you become this judgmental, critical person that we point the finger at others, look down at others, criticize others, call others names, condemn them for the wrong they do. We pass judgment on others. We believe others are worthy of the judgment of God while we are not. We see ourselves as better than. There's one standard this person has for themselves and another standard 
for the people around them. That these sins over here are worthy of God's judgment, but mine, mine are not. And they misunderstand. We misunderstand the standard of God for being right with him, perfection. We misunderstand, underestimate our own sin, but we, they also misunderstand the character of God. Paul gets into an argument here, or he brings up, a, I think, a theological argument that oftentimes, <clears throat> in an attempt to justify ourselves, to justify our sin, to justify that somehow we're okay while others may not be, we take refuge in some sort of theological argument. And what was their argument? Well, it was the kindness of God. Paul writes, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? What is Paul saying? The kindness of God, specifically as it applied to the Jew, referred to uh, the people's experience of God's goodness. God had blessed them. This is the kindness or the goodness of God. That God has been kind and good. His restraint and patience referring to his delay in judgment. Delay in punishment for those who have sinned, who have broken God's law. And see, what was happening here is at least for the Jewish person, is they were looking at the kindness of God, the blessing of God, and they were saying, therefore, God, we're okay. We're okay. No punishment has been brought on us. Therefore, God is, is fine with us. He's accepted us, and we can do quite the same. We look at our life, and we think because our life is fine, going well, life is easy, whatever it might be, it's blessed, whatever that might mean, we think that that means God is fine with how we are living that our life is acceptable to him. That somehow we don't stand worthy in, of judgment before him. But Paul's saying you have misunderstood the kindness of God. You've misunderstood the, the restraint of God and the patience of God. For Paul says in that same verse, he says, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. To the Jew in particular, Paul's saying, you don't understand do you not understand what the kindness of God is for? Why he hasn't judged you or why he hasn't punished you, why you haven't been condemned in one sense or you have not been uh, uh, wiped off the earth? It's because God's kindness isn't because he's approving your behavior. It's because he's giving you time to repent of your behavior, to repent of the worshiping of something other than God, to turn and to put faith in Christ. Second Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's patient. He wants people to come to repentance and to not repent and to continue in your sin, to continue to believe that uh, you are not guilty when you are, is to despise, is to look down on God's kindness. It's to not rightly value God's kindness and patience and to understand the patience and kindness of God in your life. It's not meant to affirm you. It's meant to call you to turn to him, to walk with him. God's kindness or not bringing immediate judgment on your life, or because your life is going well for you, is not to confirm that you are not guilty, but it's to draw you to Christ, to repent of your sin and look to Jesus. And Paul says, but because you don't, 
in verse 5, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Your lack of repentance in light of God's kindness is evidence of what is true about you, which is that you have a hardened heart. And the Greek word here for hardened is where we get our term sclerosis from, where the thickening or hardening of a body part, or we're most familiar with probably the artery arterial sclerosis, where your arteries are hardening and it restricts blood flow to your organs and tissues, not allowing oxygen to get to those tissues, creating problems. And this is the picture of the person who's unwilling to repent and turn to Christ, is they're unresponsive, insensitive to God, to his kindness. In fact, they use his kindness to justify their life. And as one commentator put it, the hardening of arteries may take a person to the grave, but the hardening of his spiritual heart will take him to hell. So the reality is the moralist, the judgmental, self-righteous person is not innocent, is not better, is not exempt from God's judgment, won't escape it because in judging others, you condemn yourself, you do the same things. You might be able to fool others or even fool yourself, but God will not be fooled. God sees the heart. He sees what's happening when others don't see it in the privacy, privacy of our, our own lives. And more importantly, he sees down deep into our heart, our inner world and motives and attitudes. That God knows what is true about us and he is going to judge on the basis of truth. His judgment then is inescapable. Number two, God's judgment is righteous. Not only is it inescapable, but righteous. In verse five, again, Paul is saying, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed, the righteous judgment of God. The day is coming when God will judge mankind, when his judgment will be revealed. And that judgment, Paul says, is a just judgment. It is a fair judgment. But what will he use to make a righteous or fair judgment? What is it based on? Well, here's what Paul says in verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Paul says your works. God is going to make his judgment. He's going to judge you on the basis of your works. And so there's this inflexible principle here that's the basis for God's judgment, which is exact retribution. It's punishment or reward based on what a person has done. He's going to give you exactly what you deserve based on what you have or have not done. This is the foundation of God's judgment. The foundation of God's justice is he's going to judge you according to your works. Now, many people, many Christians look at that verse and they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Paul, have you changed your mind since Romans 1? Like in Romans 1 where you said that the only way that we're righteous is through faith in the righteousness of God? Are you not saying that there needs to be some kind of work that is added to faith in order to stand before God's judgment? Well, one commentator said this. He said, first, let us give Paul some credit for intelligence. Only 20 verses previously did he say that we are saved apart from the law or anything that we can do. We should start from the assumption that Paul is not quietly or accidentally contradicting himself. That we shouldn't assume, okay, wait, Paul must be, con no, he's not contradicting himself. So then what is Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying that works matter. They matter. 
but not as the basis for salvation, rather as evidence of salvation. Evidence that the faith that you have is a genuine saving faith. And this is the same idea that's communicated in James chapter 2. Oftentimes, James and Paul, are like, they're like pitted against one another. Martin Luther didn't want James in the Bible because he saw it as a contradiction. But James 2, James is dealing with the same idea. And he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? The question that Paul or that James is simply asking is, what kind of faith saves a person? What kind of faith is a saving faith? Well, he answers that question in verse 15 through 20. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and any one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe they, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? What, what, kind, of faith, what kind of faith is a saving faith? Well, James says it's a faith that works. A saving faith is a faith that does works. The good works show that there is genuine saving faith. They're not adding to our faith and saving us. It's just the fruit of genuine saving faith. Think about it this way. Apple on an apple tree. What do the apples show? Well, the apples prove that the apple tree has life. They prove the tree has life. But they don't provide it. The apples are the evidence that the apple tree is alive. While the roots are what pull in and nourish it to keep it that way, the apples are the fruit, the evidence of it. In the same way, faith in Christ alone, it provides new life. He gives us his righteousness, the righteousness of God to anyone who believes. And to anyone who believes in Christ, their life will be changed. It'll be a changed life of righteousness, of right living, which is the evidence, it's the apple that proves that the faith is real, it's alive. And so what Paul does is he gives us a little test here in verses 7 and 8 and then also in 9 and 10. But we're going to look here at verses 7 and 8. What are the indicators of genuine saving faith? Well, verse 7, test that your faith is genuine, it is real. Eternal life, he says, again, genuine faith, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. Persistence in doing good, meaning living a godly life, a way that reflects the character of God. Doing good has become a persistent pattern in life. Not to earn righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, because of what Christ has done for you. And the, the good work here, the, the, the good that Paul is focused on is seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Glory, seeking the glory of God, living for the glory and honor of God, seeking the honor of God, that we care more about what God thinks about our life than what other people think about our life, and that we find eternal life in God, immortality. See, where is life found? Where is glory and honor ultimately found? In God, in Christ. And oftentimes we get our lives all whacked up. When we look at last week, we have disordered worship, which leads to a disordered life, that oftentimes we're seeking glory, honor, and immortality in other things. 
in created things and not in God himself. But see, the true believer, the person who has genuine faith in Christ, is persistent in doing good. And the highest good that you can seek is the glory, honor, and immortality in Christ. And so you just think, in my life, am I persevering in doing good? Am I seeking the glory of God, the honor found in God, the life that is found in Christ? Or am I looking to myself, to my own glory? Am I looking to myself to provide life or to something else to give me life as opposed to Christ? But see, if we have genuine faith in Christ, we will pursue Christ. We'll pursue relationship with Christ and a life that emulates Christ. It's what will come out of us if our genuine faith, if we have genuine faith in Jesus. And then verse 8, indicators of a person who's not right with God. Well, it's quite the opposite. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking. Self-seeking. It's a telltale sign of a person who's not right with God. That they're living for self, willed by themselves. Living for their own glory, not God's glory. They're their own Lord, their own Savior. And what Paul says is they disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. They reject the truth. They want nothing to do with the truth or, or they won't submit themselves to the truth. They're unteachable people and they're disobeying the truth. Their lives are unrighteous. And see, even religious people can live this way. See, religious people, they can kind of submit to God they kind of pretend they, they might do some nice things, go to church, go to a Bible study, do some nice things for other people, but in their heart of hearts, they refuse to submit their life to Christ. In their heart of hearts, they're unwilling, unwilling to really walk in obedience to Christ. That when Christ calls them to change, they're like, no. And they justify. And they work around and so Paul, he's saying, no, no, works don't save us, faith does, but works, works are the evidence of whether or not our faith is genuine and real. And so God's judgment is a righteous judgment based on our works. We will receive what we have been given, which leads to the third and final, which is that God's judgment is impartial. Paul, he kind of bookends this, the idea of God's judgment is righteous according to our, our works. He's going to judge us according to our works which flows in into verse 11, for there is no favoritism with God. God does not play favorites. To the Jew here, Paul is saying, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're right with God. Your Jewishness doesn't save you. Just because you're in a Christian family doesn't mean you're acceptable to God, that you'll escape the judgment of God. Your Christian family doesn't save you. Whether you have access to the Bible, whether you go to church, these things are not what saves you. There's only one thing that can save you, and that is Christ. God's judgment is impartial. It's the same. It's based on whether or not a person has put faith in Christ. How have we decided to relate to God, if you will? Have we trusted in the work of Christ? Or are we trusting in ourselves to earn righteousness before Christ. The God's work or judgment is impartial. It's inescapable and it's righteous in closing two applications. First, judge but don't be judgmental. The mantra of our culture is 
don't judge me. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. It's the one verse people know that aren't Christians, they know well. Don't judge. Don't judge me. And what is Jesus saying here? I mean, think about this for a moment. He says, don't judge, but then what does Paul do in Romans chapter 1? What is he doing in Romans chapter 2? Judging. He's judging. He's making a judgment. So, so how, what does he say? What, is, what does this mean then, do not judge? Well, Paul, Jesus, scriptures are clear. We're not to be judgmental people. We're not to be critical people. Jesus does not forbid self or uh, forbid evaluation. He's not forbidding judgment. In fact, ultimately, if somebody has compassion, they're grieved, and they're humble over another person's sin, we can be quite helpful in them or helpful to them in repenting and turning from sin. But what Jesus does rule out is pride. He's ruling out this pride, this mentality, this attitude that sees oneself as better than others and therefore sits above and judges others, condemning others. What Jesus is condemning is this hypocritical judgment that focuses on others' faults while excusing our own sin. While we don't recognize, we don't take into consideration the log again that's in our own eye. See, brothers and sisters, it'd be foolishness to, to, to look at a situation, to look at someone who's committed murder and to not say that is murder. Paul's not saying turn a blind eye towards sin and don't acknowledge, don't judge, don't point and say that is sin, call it for what it is. But we should not be people who elevate ourselves over those who are living in sin as though somehow we are better than them and that we have had no sin. And so the appropriate response here is repentance. Paul's driving towards the heathen or towards the hypocrite. He's driving them towards repentance. Don't you understand? You have sinned before a holy God. Whether externally, internally, the reality is we've all done both. God's standard to be in relationship with him is perfection. No one sits in that boat of perfection other than one, and that is Christ. And so the only way to escape the coming judgment of God is to turn to the one whom the wrath of God was poured out onto, which is Christ. It's Jesus. That Jesus is the shelter that God has provided to shield us from his coming wrath and judgment against our sin, because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that we might become righteous. And he sits on your behalf, defending you. See, the only thing that can save you, whether you're the heathen living in over rebellion to God or the person who thinks you can earn your position by, or to, before God by doing certain things, the only thing that can save you is the righteousness found in Christ. There's nothing else. And so I'd encourage you this morning that if you have not turned and put your faith in Christ, that you would trust in Jesus. That you would look and understand that he died in your place to pay for your sin. Because he loves you. Because he wants you to be in relationship with himself. And as Christians this morning, 
for those of us who have a genuine faith in Christ, the truth is, the reality is, we can find ourselves being much like the person Paul is talking about in Romans 2, 1 through 4. The judgmental, critical person. We can look at the culture and we can just point and we can blast. And we just condemn. And we go after. And again, don't hear me. It's not that we should not call out sin. It's not that we should not be clear about what sin is. But brothers and sisters, our heart, our heart matters. There should not be criticism, but there should be compassion. You see, when we look to Christ, we look to the gospel, what we are reminded of is that we are just like them. We are in the same boat. The only reason we're in a position before God where we are declared righteous is because of the righteousness of God, because of faith in the work of Christ. That we must look to Christ to realize, to find compassion for the lost world, not criticism. That when we look to Christ, we're reminded of that we are to be, we are in the world, the culture that we're in, in order to help people come to faith in Christ. It's the work of God, but God has chosen to use us to communicate that truth, that work of Christ to the world. And there really may not be anything more quite destructive to the spread of the gospel than Christians who are judgmental and overly critical and self-righteous. People sense it, right? Like when you're doing it. I struggle with this. My, 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 you, you don't have to say anything. It's like I can just look and my kids like sense it when I'm going to be critical. It's like that's just what happens. Your face, your tone. And it doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring life. You know that when someone does it to you. It doesn't bring life. It just brings 